Thank you for listening to this recording of Family Bible Church's Sunday morning message. We pray that God will use this word to bless and encourage you. So I'm going to start in Daniel 5.31 and read to the end of chapter 6. So Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be over the whole kingdom and over these three governors of whom Daniel was one, that the satraps might give account to them so that the king would suffer no loss. Then this Daniel distinguished himself above the governors and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. So the governors and satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find no charge or fault because he was faithful, nor was there any error or fault found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any charge against this Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God. So these governors and satraps thronged before the king and said thus to him, King Darius, live forever. All the governors of the kingdom, the administrators and satraps, the counselors and advisors, have consulted together to establish a royal statute and to make a firm decree that whoever petitions any god or man for thirty days, except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which does not alter. Therefore, King Darius signed the written decree. Now when Daniel knew the writing was signed, he went home, and in his upper room with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since early days. Then these men assembled and found Daniel praying and making supplication before his God. And they went before the king and spoke concerning the king's decree, have you not signed a decree that every man who petitions any god or man within thirty days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing is true, according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which does not alter. So they answered and said before the king, That Daniel, who is one of the captives from Judah, does not show due regard for you, O king. Or for the decree that you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. And the king, when he heard these words, was greatly displeased with himself and set his heart on Daniel to deliver him. And he labored till the going down of the sun to deliver him. Then these men approached the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and Persians that no decree or statute which the king establishes may be changed. So the king gave the command, and they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. But the king spoke, saying to Daniel, Your God, whom you serve continually, he will deliver you. Then a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signets of his lords, that the purpose concerning Daniel might not be changed. Now the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting, and no musicians were brought before him. Also his sleep went from him. 
Then the king arose very early in the morning and went in haste to the den of lions. And when he came to the den, he cried out with a lamenting voice to Daniel. The king spoke, saying, Daniel, saying to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths so that they have not hurt me, because I was found innocent before him. And also, O king, I have done no wrong before you. Now the king was exceedingly glad for him and commanded that they should take Daniel up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no injury whatever was found on him, because he believed in his God. And the king gave the command, and they brought those men who had accused Daniel, and they cast them into the den of lions. Them, their children, their wives, and the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces before they ever came to the bottom of the den. Then King Darius wrote, To all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom, men must tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and steadfast forever. His kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed, and his dominion shall endure to the end. He delivers and rescues, and he works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. Who has delivered Daniel from the power of the lions? So this Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. You may be seated. I want to start with a word of prayer. Father, we come humbly before you to worship you today as both the God who protected Daniel in the lion's den, kept him from any injury whatsoever, and also the God who sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross and rise from the dead that we might be kept from the consequence of sin, the eternal punishment that we deserve, and instead might have life in Christ with you. Father, today please be glorified as we work through this chapter in Daniel. Give me wisdom in what I say. Uh, help me to remember the important things. And let me forget to say the things that aren't important. And I ask more than even that, that you would work in the hearts of everybody here and on Zoom. That uh, you will speak to each person where they need to be spoken to. That you will teach them. That they will remember what you say more than what I say. And I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we are in the book of Daniel. This is the last chapter of the six narrative chapters before Daniel goes into prophecy. When Bob's back next week, we'll be in chapter 7, and it will begin a six-chapter run of prophecy about things to come. And uh, so far for the book of Daniel, the, we've been talking about the impact of Daniel's God, the impact of his life, and the impact of his writing, where the impact of his God has been in saving he and his friends from several different things where the 
the kingdom's laws, as issued by the king, cause them to have to take a stand and not compromise at the risk of their lives. And we see the impact of his life and how he impacts the king and also some of his friends, emboldening them to take stands. And then the impact of his writing as it's been passed down to us that we can learn from what God's revealed here. Um, I want to start with uh, who Darius is. And the reason for this, uh, chapter 531 says, Darius the Mede received the kingdom. Uh, In chapter 9, verse 1, Daniel says that it's Darius the son of Hazurus of Median descent. And uh, this causes a problem compared to secular history. I am not going to solve that problem for you, but I'm going to lead you in a given direction that I hope will help. So some of you may not have even known it was a problem. Um, What I've listed for you here are the chronology of kings in the Persian Empire. And Cyrus II at the top of the list is the Cyrus mentioned at the end of chapter 6. Uh, 6 verse 28 that said Daniel enjoyed success in the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. That's Cyrus the second there. Uh, and history, in history looking back at him, we call him Cyrus the Great. What I want you to notice here is that there's a whole bunch of Persian kings. Um, there's three different Dariuses. Darius is one, two, and three. The timing of this is such that we know the Darius the Mede talked about that we're dealing with, that Daniel's dealing with in chapter 6, is not Darius 1, 2, and 3. They're too late in things. Um, the other thing I want you to notice is that some of these kings have more than one name. Darius II, Nothus, that was his given name before he became king. And it was a kind of common thing. They would have a given name, family name, personal name, When they become king, they often, not always, but often would then adopt a royal name, often named after some famous king in their lineage that had come before them. Uh, And so that's really the point of this chart. At the bottom, I have Alexander of Macedon. Who knows what we call him in history, looking backwards? Alexander the Great. Yeah, so Cyrus II was Cyrus the Great. Alexander of Macedon was Alexander the Great, the start of the Greek Empire. Okay, so here I've taken just the first six of those kings in that Persian Empire list. And on the right, I have in black some of the key points of Jewish history, of the history of Judea. Um, And so you can see where those things fall out. Now, part of the reason, the main reason I have this up here to give you perspective from the Bible, how it fits in with these various Persian kings. But also, uh, Darius, the name Darius is mentioned in several other uh, books of the Bible. If you've read through the Bible uh, one or several times, you've you've stumbled across this. Uh, Darius I is the one that's mentioned in Ezra and in Haggai and Zechariah. Ezra records how opposition has come against them when they're trying to rebuild the temple. And and they cite an edict by Cyrus that told them they could come back and could rebuild the temple. But the locals in the area who are not Jews, uh, they're resisting that. They don't believe that such an edict was issued. And so 
Ezra records in Aramaic the request that went back to the king at the time, which was Darius I, asking that a search of the records be made and see if you can find it. And Darius did that search, and you can read in Ezra how he responds that they did find Cyrus's edict, and not only did they find it, which means the opposition needs to end because this is something that the Persian Empire has approved, but Darius then further commands that the resources of the king and specifically resources of those locals in that area that they have from the king should be used to help rebuild the temple. That's all Darius I. Um, let's see. Nehemiah mentions Darius. And down here, you, the star here means we don't really know when Nehemiah stopped being on the scene. He clearly was governor of, Ju- of Judah at uh, Artaxerxes' direction for a 12-year period. And in uh, one of the later chapters of Nehemiah, chapter 12, I think, uh, he, he mentions that in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, he had been away. He had gone back to see the king. And then he comes back. So 433 is actually when he comes back to Jerusalem. And we don't know how long he's there. He could have continued on and been alive all the way to the time of Darius II. That would only have been 10 years later. But we don't know. Um, But he mentions a Darius the Persian, which is an interesting phrase because it may have been to distinguish him from a Darius the Mede. But in any event, uh, he he could be referring to Darius I or to Darius II. I lean towards Darius I. Several historians that I read think it's Darius II. In, In any event, it's not Darius the Mede that he mentions. The only place that Darius the Mede is the Darius being talked about is in the book of Daniel. So I want to tell you one thing about Cyrus before I leave this slide. Cyrus II, Cyrus the Great, he had two grandfathers that were kings. On his dad's side, the paternal grandfather was the king of the Persians. And on his mom's side, his maternal grandfather was the king of the Medes. And at the time of those two grandfathers, the Medes were the dominant kingdom. And they struck an alliance. His two grandfathers created an alliance between them where the king of the Persians was within the realm of the king of the Medes. So he was still king of his land, Persia, but he was sort of beholden or in alliance with the dominant kingdom of the day, which was the kingdom of the Medes. And so they struck this alliance. And one of the things out of the alliance was that the king of the Medes gave his daughter, which ultimately became Cyrus's mom, to the king of the Persians' son, who became Cyrus's dad. They had an, a marriage as part of that alliance. And I don't have it on the screen, but Cyrus's grandfather is Cyrus I. His dad is Cambyses I. You can see how the names get reused. They're naming sons after fathers or grandfathers. Uh, so anyway, so that, that was the alliance that had been put in place. Now, the kingdom passed on the paternal side when a king died. So when Cyrus I died, Cambyses I became king of the Persians. When he died, Cyrus II became the king of the Persians. On the Mede side, if the grandfather died, his son would have become king of the Medes. But before that happened... Cyrus the Great proved to not be a very great grandson. And after he became king of the Persians, he turned on his grandfather. 
And he fought a war against him and defeated his army. And then he became kind-hearted. He wasn't great as a grandson in taking away his grandfather's kingdom, but he let his grandfather live when his grandfather was captured. And he even put him in charge of a province, so he gave him a role in the overall government. But that's how uh, the, the Median kingdom and the Persian kingdom got united under Cyrus, who was a descendant on both sides. But he went and fought against his grandfather to get the kingdom of Media. The one other thing in all of that, well, I'll leave it at that. So that's some of the, the history there. Um, so there's lots of theories about who Darius the Mede is. I read about a bunch of them this week. And all of them have at least some historians who take strong opposition against it. Or for just me reading the Bible, it seems like it doesn't match what I see in the Bible. And that's why I said earlier, I'm not going to solve this for you. But I am going to try to encourage you with something. Let's trust the Bible. There was a Darius the Mede, okay? And he overlapped with or preceded Cyrus in some sort of peaceable fashion. They didn't have to go to war uh, to resolve things between them. And the other thing I want to say is that secular historians, they simply have not yet caught up to the Bible, okay? So now in making this statement, let's trust the Bible, I do want to give you two things to help you with this. So our faith is not an absolutely blind faith. Our faith is based on evidence. God speaks and people in faith believe him. And then they obey one way or another. Abram believed God and God reckoned it to him as righteousness. What was he believing? If you go back and look in Genesis 15, it was that God was going to give him children that would become a nation and give him a land. Okay? He didn't see that nation come to exist. He didn't have any children at the time God spoke to him, but he believed God. He had faith. Um, There is evidence for Jesus Christ being a real person who died on the cross, rose from the dead, was seen by lots of people, and ascended to heaven. Our faith in that, and we do have faith in that, but it's not a blind faith. There is a basis, a foundation for it. Okay, you get where I'm going? There is evidence for why it's reasonable to accept the, word, the Bible as the word of God. It's not just a blind faith. There is evidence. Every time I'm using the word evidence, that doesn't mean that it's an absolute proof to everyone who sees or hears that evidence. But it is evidence. And you can come to some reasonable conclusions. Okay? In your lives, if you have become a follower of Jesus Christ by faith in him, trusting in his death for the forgiveness of your sins, and now you have a relationship with him, well, that's based on faith. But there's also evidence, I hope, that God is in you, that you have a relationship with him. So anyway, my point is faith of the sort we have as followers of Christ is not a blind faith. It's based on evidence. So now, in me saying, let's trust the Bible, there was a Darius of the Mede. And by the way, On all the theories, if any of you are into that and have ever looked into it and have think something, I'm willing to talk about that with anybody that wants to. 
but I'm not going to do it here. It would just take too long, and it's kind of beside the point, okay? But I want to give you two evidences for trusting the Bible. So on the subject of there being a Darius the Mede, there are at least two ancient sources that describe another king of the Medes between the grandfather on the mother's side of Cyrus and Cyrus. Um, before overlapping with Cyrus, one of them, one of the two actually indicates that that king was named Darius. Now, these are two sources that secular historians, so I'm going to let you in on something. Secular historians sort of pick and choose. And there's several different sources for these sorts of things. And the transition from for how Cyrus brought the two kingdoms together they say themselves is a little bit murky. These two sources I'm referring to here are sources that secular historians accept and take to the bank on some other things. They just don't on these things. Um, And then there's a third source that says Cyrus actually married the daughter of his uncle, which would have been a son of his grandfather and um, uh, brother of his mom you remember his mom was the daughter of the grandfather and uh actually married just married his cousin and that opens the door for there being one and possibly two other kings of the medes now there's no mention of of a darius here but just that there might have been another king between grandfather and down to cyrus on the mede side so there are a, a few ancient sources so i mentioned that as thing one thing two however is that and this is the last slide, I promise you, before we jump into the book of Daniel. Thing two is that archaeology is slow to catch up with the Bible. And I could have spent the whole message just telling you of archaeology that has confirmed the Bible in things where secular historians had not believed it up until whatever they found. Okay, There's a long history of not believing things in the Bible until archaeology forces accepting it. And then those people go on and find other things to attack in the Bible. Uh, So I'm just going to give you a few, okay? Just a few. Belshazzar. He's the guy in chapter 5 from last week in Daniel. Well, the the secular historians did not believe there was a Belshazzar. Nabonidus was the last king of the Persians. Bob talked about that line on the Babylonian side uh, one or two weeks ago. Well, they didn't believe there was a Belshazzar until some Babylonian inscriptions were found in 1854. And then, oh, okay, Daniel 5 had it right. Um, Pontius Pilate, 1961, before historians believed that there was a Pontius Pilate. That's actually when the first thing was found that mentioned him. It took a little while with them finding more things on that. Felix, the governor in Judea, who's mentioned in Acts, it was 1966 before anything was known about him other than what's in the Bible. Philistines. So liberal uh, historians doing critical analysis of the Bible, starting uh, with German, with, in Germany in the uh, 1600s, 1700s, they didn't believe that there were Philistines. The Bible had that wrong. And then in 1846, some archaeology was found that was, it was actually in Egypt, Egypt cuneiform inscriptions that talked about the Philistines, and they found a whole lot more since then. Roman crucifixion using nails in the feet and ankles. Critics of the Bible would say that part was wrong. They didn't put nails in their feet, they just tied their feet. And in 1986, a burial cave in Israel, they found 
a, a foot bone ankle thing with a, a nail going through it. And then just last year, 2021, they found another one in England, 400 AD. The Romans controlled England there, and they did some crucifixions there. So there now are two examples of that, nails in the feet and ankles. And the last one I want to give you that you may not have been aware of is synagogues in use in Israel. Critics of the Bible have said that once the second temple was built, they had no need for synagogues. All this stuff we read about Jesus going to synagogues in Israel. Now, if you got out in the Hellenistic world, they had a need for them. So, like, this wasn't an attack on the book of Acts where Paul's going to synagogues. But in the Gospels where Jesus goes to synagogues, that was a liberal attack of the Bible. They didn't need it. They had a temple. Well, in 2009, archaeologists found a synagogue, the remains of one in Magdala, which is in the area of modern Migdal, Israel, on the, on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's where Mary Magdalene's from. Uh, they found a synagogue that dates to the time of Christ. Then, last year, they found another one up the street, so to say. It's about 100 meters apart, a second synagogue. So they found two where Mary Magdalene was from. And so that's changed the thinking on that. Okay, it's credible. They had synagogues. They were in use before the temple was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. So trust the Bible. That's the point. Historians are slow to catch up to the Bible. There's a long track record of this. All right, so now Daniel 5, I mean Daniel 6. The king sets up this administration. He's got 120 officials I said satraps. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right. Anybody know what the, is that the right pronunciation? Satraps? Thumbs up? Okay, we'll go with that. 120 of them. He divides his kingdom into 120 provinces or districts. I'm not sure what they called them. They reported to the three governors. Daniel was one of those governors. And the purpose was so that the king would suffer no loss. So they were watching out for the interests of the king. And Daniel was successful. He distinguished himself Far above all the other officials. And so much so that, uh, well, I'm jumping ahead. The source of his success was the excellent spirit that was in him. Now, we've seen this before. Remember over in Daniel 1? Daniel 1, verse 17, talking about Daniel and his three friends. It says, these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill and all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams And then verse 20 says, In all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and the astrologers who were in all his realm. So God is giving Daniel this excellent spirit that leads to the king noticing. And the king, the result of that success is the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. He was going to elevate him up, would be the same kind of situation that we see in Genesis when Joseph is elevated to number two to Pharaoh in charge of the whole kingdom. So the king's about to do this, and apparently it's become known to all these other officials because they start searching for fault. And verse four says, he was faithful, nor is there any error or fault found in him. They can't find anything. They start out looking for fault in regard to governmental affairs, his job. And they can't find any fault with Daniel in regard to his job. So they actually say in verse 5, we we won't find any charge against this Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God. 
Does this sound familiar? Can't find any fault with him in regard to work, but we don't like him. We want to get rid of him. Let's look at his personal life, specifically the God he believes in. And now, this could happen in our country, but it's even more so likely to happen in a country that believes in all kinds of other gods. Remember, he's from Judea. He worships Yahweh, but he's in a land where they worship Marduk and other Babylonian gods. His God's a foreign god. This is maybe easy pickings. And, of course, they know how faithful he is in regard to his relationship with God. He's not just faithful in government service to the king. He's faithful in serving his God. And I put before you that that's what comes first. The reason he's faithful in his work for the king is because he's faithful to his Lord, to his God. So they set a trap. You see it in verse 6 through 9. Um, Their basic plan is they go convince the king to pass this law that can't be undone, uh, which apparently is a separate thing about the the laws of the Medes and the Persians. You can't revoke it once you get a law passed. If you've read the book of Esther, you see a similar thing. Now, Esther is four generations later under uh, Xerxes I, um, but it's the same kind of principle. If If the Medes and Persians pass a law, you can't revoke it. So what happens in Esther is once the plot by Haman is found out is, is the king, king Xerxes uh, at Mordecai's suggestion, Mordecai is shrewd, will just pass another law that allows the Jews to defend themselves. We'll see in this case that uh, King Darius doesn't come up with a solution like that to the problem. So they set this trap and they go pitch it to the king and the king goes for it. So I want to just pause here and say, when everyone wants you to do something that makes you look good, you need to be careful. You need to pause and think about it. What is it they're playing to in the king? Pride, arrogance. Yeah, Proverbs 8.13 says, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverse mouth I hate. God is opposed to pride, to arrogance. Um, Luke twelve fifteen says, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Some of your translations, it'll say covetousness. In the Greek, that means greed for more whatever. Fill in the blank. It doesn't nest only apply to wealth. In the Luke 12 context, it is about wealth. A man has said... Um, Tell my brother to divide the, the inheritance between us. Uh, but it's also applied, this word applies to greed of any sort. What's the king greedy for when these people come and pitch this to him? What do you think? I'd say, what, Rodney? Praise. Praise. So, yeah, he's greedy for more honor, right? They're... Their edict that they want him to sign basically puts him in the place of God. For 30 days, no one can make an appeal to anyone but him, to no God or any other man. So he's putting himself, or they, they're encouraging him to put himself in the place of God. And that's where the real fault is with the law. 
uh, with the law he passes. Last verse I want to show you is James 4.16. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So, so the king is susceptible to their plot because it's stroking his ego, right? And so he signs off on it, and the trap is set. Um, and so now it's up to Daniel. What are you going to do? Verse 10 has several things in it that are illuminating. Verse 10 says, When Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home, and in his upper room with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day, prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since early days. Now, the first thing I want you to notice is Daniel was not tricked. Now, where he was in the discussion amongst all these officials trying to convince the king to do that, Scripture obviously didn't tell us. Whether he opposed it in any way, Scripture doesn't tell us. But he's not tricked because he knew the writing was signed. The second thing I want you to notice is from the end of verse 10, Scripture says what he did was his custom since early days. He didn't go home and do something new. He continued as normal. So the stuff in the middle of the verse is what was normal for Daniel's day-to-day life. He had an upper room, which is where he would go to pray. He would leave the windows open towards Jerusalem while he's praying. He did it three times a day. And when he prayed, one of the things he did was give thanks to God. He prayed and gave thanks to God. Now, this means that while doing his function as a top official, one of the top three, one-third of the kingdom, we could assume, is under him, he's taking a break and going back to his house three different times during the day so he can pray to his God. Don't you think that his coworkers would have noticed He keeps leaving to go home. That's how they knew to pick on this, right? And he leaves his windows open. Now, Scripture doesn't actually tell... The next verse is going to tell us that they, after this was all in place and he went home and prayed, that they came and found out. And then they went to the king. Don't know how they found out. Did they knock on the doors and open up and catch him praying? You know, I don't know. But it's obvious that they could have looked in the windows, right? He's praying with the windows open. So he doesn't do anything new. He has a custom. And so I want you for a moment to put yourself in his shoes. Because he's got a choice. He could continue praying silently. Right? He could go on prayer walks around the kingdom. Eyes open. Talking to God silently. But he has a custom. A devotion in his relationship with God. And he's going to keep doing it. And so the third thing here is that he did pray and give thanks three times per day. We don't actually know how many days it is before they sprung the trap. um, Because it says he prayed three times a day. It seems to imply to me that at least one full day passed where he went home and prayed three times after the law had been signed into effect. Um, But he continues doing what's normal for him. And so I want to ask you, in your relationship with God, what would you refuse to compromise over? Now, there's some big things that jump to mind where a law tells you to do something that God clearly has told us not to do, or the opposite, tells you not to do something that Scripture clearly tells us to do, 
But I think there's a, another level of this to think about because Daniel is doing what he's practicing in his daily devotion to God. So there's some things that you could think about there. If you regularly read the Bible, you delight in that. That's part of your relationship with God. And you were told for 30 days you can't read the Bible. Would that be one where you would flout it? Uh, Praying is an obvious one here um, where Daniel continues to pray. Uh, One that comes to my mind is gathering with believers to worship. We're told in Hebrews chapter 10 not to forsake our own assembling together. And in this country... For some people, that became a very real thing during the COVID pandemic because some states, our state, only had a lockdown for 30 days. And as a leadership team, we decided we could start using Zoom. Some of you may not know, that's when we started using Zoom so that we could have fellowship for a short temporary period, continue to worship, thus be submitting to our ruling authorities, to the human institution above us, and then return to normal, which is what we did. In June of 2021, when the lockdown ended, we started meeting together, or it might have even been in May. Um, I think it was in May we had limited meeting here, still on Zoom, and then June we all came together. But there were some states, and you, you know of this, where the lockdowns continued for a very long time, and they were not allowed by law to gather to meet, and there were some Christians who eventually had to decide, when do we decide enough's enough? This could become permanent. We have to do something. Now, there were other churches, other people in the same states who via Zoom and other mechanisms continued to find other ways to still worship. So, you know, there's a there's a gray area in there and people had to make choices. But that's a real thing that has happened in some states in our country where Hebrews 10 comes into play. And you're telling me I can't assemble to worship in some countries today. People break the law. Christians to meet in homes in order to worship because they're not allowed to have a church and they get arrested if they get caught. So it's worth thinking, what are things you would not compromise over that are part of your devotion to God? Okay, now for the rest of the story, as we go through this chapter, um, I'm going to cover five D's uh, that draw out key things that occurred to me as I studied it. First one is the the distress of the king in verses 14 and 16, 14 through 16. Um, He he clearly realizes that he's been snookered. Had he known that this was aimed at Daniel, whom he's considering making top dog the whole kingdom under him beneath the, the king himself, he would not have gone along with this rule. But he can't change it. He can't revoke it. And so he spends until sunset. Now, so when they, when they pass a law, it's sort of implied here that if there was an offender, they had to carry it out, the punishment, within a certain time. It doesn't tell us that. But apparently he's got till sunset. And he's wrestling, struggling. The, the word here, um, he labored till the going down of the sun. That, that word means to struggle. So from whatever time in the day that they sprung the trap, I mean, that they told him about Daniel, and he now realizes what's going on, he's struggling the rest of the day trying to figure out how can he save Daniel. 
And they come to him in verse 15, and they say, King, remember the law. Remember Daniel's violating it. And they sort of finally force his hand. And so in verse 16, he gives the command that they bring Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. But he's distressed over it. That's the first D. Second D is the den itself of lions. Daniel gets tossed in. And not only do they toss him in, it's interesting in verse 17, a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den. So this is some kind of thing like at a basement level. They drop you in. The lions are down there. They bring a stone to cover the mouth of it and, uh, and seal it up. And the king seals it with his own signet ring and the signets of his lords. So this is like Daniel's been dropped in. The stone's been placed on it, and no one's allowed to remove that stone. Now, something about, you know, amount of time, you've got to leave them in there. They, they never had a case of someone surviving a lion's den, I bet. Um, but apparently overnight is sufficient, you know, because that's what ends up happening. But I want you to see um, the next, uh, well, I want you to note the king's view of Daniel's God, because there's several good things here that flow out of the distress and then throw in Daniel in. The first thing is the king has struggled all day to find a way to save Daniel. And now he comes to Daniel and it's like, I couldn't find a way. I'm reading into that. He doesn't say that in scripture. But what he does say is your God, whom you serve continually, he will deliver you. I, the king, couldn't find a way to deliver you. But your God will deliver you. Now, in some translations, you'll find it phrased as may your God in the rest of the sentence. But in the main translations that we in here use, it just says your God. And, so, and I think that's, that's, the, that's the stronger statement. It's not, just, it's not a blessing, a hope that your God will save you. This is a statement of confidence that the kings come to. Your God will deliver you. Then in verse 18, this, the king spends the night fasting. Scripture says no diversion, no entertainment was brought to him of the sort he would normally have in the evening. And he couldn't even sleep. One version says sleep fled from him. So he spends the night awake and fasting. Now, there's a reason why people fasted. They fasted to implore a God to favor them. That's what they did in those days. That's what some people do now, prayer and fasting. We have two weeks a year where we fast as part of prayer. Uh, the king fasted that night, and while he made... He, so I don't want to go so far as to say he knew Yahweh before this. He's probably a worshiper of Marduk. But he's learned enough about Daniel. He's seen that excellent spirit in him, and he knows Daniel is continually serving Daniel's God, the God Yahweh, the God of Judea. And I, it's, I'm reading between the lines, but he goes home and fasts. I don't think he's fasting to get Marduk to help out. I think he's fasting towards Yahweh. However way you want to take it, he's disturbed enough to skip all meals, imploring a God... I'm going to put Yahweh in there, Daniel's God, and he doesn't sleep all night. Then the third thing is he gets up early in the morning. That phrase early in the morning is the phrase used for dawn, crack of dawn. He's up. 
He's up early in the morning and he goes in haste to the den of lions. And the significance here is he doesn't, what would you think most kings would do? He's got all kinds of servants. Send a servant, go check, see did Daniel survive? No, he cares deeply about Daniel. And I think he's wanting to see that God, that Daniel's God deliver him. He's the one, he goes, he doesn't send servants. He goes, crack of dawn to the den And now remember, there's a stone on top, so he can't just look in. Probably would have taken several men to move that stone. He doesn't look in. He calls because the stone's on top. So he calls. He yells out, Daniel, and uh, uh, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? Now, I don't think you would call out unless you thought there's a chance he's alive in there, right? I mean, the normal way if someone's been thrown into a den of lions is you would send your servant, number one. But even if you went, you wouldn't be calling out. You'd tell some of the people with you, remove the stone. Let's look in and find out. He calls out. He's not even, he's, he's so eager. He's not going to wait for the stone to be removed. That's another way you could, t- you could take this. Okay, so the king is trusting in Daniel's God. All that struggle. Now, now, again, I'm not claiming that the king becomes a believer in Yahweh. Could be. I'm not claiming that. But for the deliverance of Daniel, he struggled all day and he gave up. I can't deliver Daniel. He's trusting in Daniel's God to save Daniel. All right. Next D is deliverance. Daniel's alive. Verse 20 through 23. What? You, you, if you put yourself in the king's situation... You're there at this lion's den. No one's ever survived this before. And you call out to Daniel. He's been there all night. And what do you hear? Oh, king, live forever. You hear his voice. Just think of the relief and the joy that the king has at that point. And Daniel goes on to say, my God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth so that they have not hurt me. Because I was found innocent before him. This is the evidence that I, Daniel, was found innocent by God because he spared me. Continuing with the verse. And also, O king, I have done no wrong before you. The law itself was wrong that had been passed. And so um, Daniel's taken up out of the den. No injury whatever was found on him because he had trusted in his God. So, not only did the king trust in Daniel's God, but Daniel was alive because Daniel had trusted in his God. You see a theme developing. Uh Uh-oh. There we go. All right, so the next D is death of the conspirators. I'm not going to dwell long on on this, uh, but there's two things that happen here. The king is obviously very ticked at the people that roped him into this situation. They appealed to his ego to do something that was stupid. And the, the guy he likes most in the kingdom of government officials got in trouble over it. King looks bad because of all this. So he takes it out on the conspirators, pitches them and their families. Did you notice that? They and their families into the den. And verse 24 says that they don't even reach the bottom before their bones are crushed. This shows us a second thing. This wasn't like those lions were well-fed before Daniel got pitched in. These are not lions who, for some 
normal, natural reason just weren't hungry and left him alone overnight. Because as soon as somebody else gets thrown in, they're all over it. Okay. This further drives home that a miracle has happened. But now in relating this to us, I think there's a poignant point here. Husbands, and I mean this, I'm not joking. Your lousy decisions, our lousy decisions as husbands can have devastating impact on our families. And if I look backwards from Daniel in Scripture, I see Korah with two others who defied Moses' leadership. And God caused the ground to open up and they and their families were swallowed up. That's in, Deuteron- in Numbers, I think. Um, in, in Joshua, Achan keeps some of the, the wealth from Jericho when they destroyed Jericho. And God had put a ban on that. And so they get defeated in battle at Ai. And God institutes this lottery thing that Joshua conducts that draws out Achan as the man. And they end up taking him and all his possessions and all his family into the valley and they stone them all. And scripture records that they piled a heap of stones over them that was there to that day, the day of when the book of Joshua was written. Um, in a prior church, there's a family, was a family in our church. And the husband lost touch with reality, somehow thought that a local policeman was having an affair with his wife, and he went and hunted down that policeman and tried to kill him. And he got tossed into prison, and we saw the impact of that on his family, our church for years, trying to help them get through. Some of you are likely from a family where dad abandoned the family at some point. And a single mom had to Raise the family, or maybe a stepdad entered the picture at some point. Some of you are probably from a busted home where divorce happened. And divorce, I, that's never a one-sided thing. There's fault with both mom and dad. But, you know, if you're from a situation where dad disappeared, there are probably, there's probably been impact on you, negative impact as you grew up. You may not have been from divorce, but you may have had a dad who was just a poor dad didn't parent very well, and you may have scars from that. One of, the, one of the biggest things that keeps people when they hear the gospel and start learning about Christ, one of the things that slows them down in responding to it is Jesus talking about father, about his father when they've had a lousy father. It causes a bias that has to be overcome. Now, our God is a God who's in the redemption business. And in some of those situations I was just describing, if you're from those, you may have experienced yourself how God has redeemed you and your life out of that bad situation. But the point here is that those of us that are husbands, we have a big responsibility in leading our wives and our families, and let's not take that lightly. These men who for climbing the ladder reasons in their jobs had tried to get rid of Daniel, their families were thrown in the lion's den with them. Okay. Uh, so, so, as a positive verse for us as husbands, I offer up Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart 
And lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. We need to trust him as we lead our families. If we're relying on our own strength, we're setting ourselves up for some type of flaw, whether it's the pride and arrogance that was Darius the Mede's problem, some type of flaw that could lead us down a path of disaster. So husbands, trust in the Lord, not on your own understanding. Be a blessing to your family, not a curse. All right, the last D is the declaration of the king. I want to read that. We're in verse 25. Well, 25, the actual declaration starts in 26. He says, I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom, men must tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God. He's not a dead God. They worshiped a lot of idols, people of that day. Where they made them by hand. Isaiah goes on in several chapters about the futility. What, it's, what are you people thinking? He's writing to people in Israel. You go out and you cut the block of wood. And you, with half of it make a fire. And with half of it you make this idol. And then you bow down and worship that half. What are you thinking? Our God is a living God. Not made by us. Steadfast forever. I'm back to the verse. Steadfast forever. He's faithful And he's eternal. His kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed and his dominion shall endure to the end. This is the top dog God he's talking about. Daniel's God. He's telling his his whole empire which worships all kinds of gods. This is the God that's supreme. His empire is over top of anything you think your God can do. Verse 27, he delivers and rescues. They had just had had a case of that. Daniel delivered and rescued from the lions. And he works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. That is a theme through Daniel with these kings. God is doing signs and wonders. Why? So that we would know that he is king. The end of verse 27, this God, he says who has delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. This God that this declaration is all about, he's the one that delivered Daniel. So we see here that the king discovers he can't deliver him, but Daniel's God can deliver him. And Daniel testifies that he was delivered because he was trusting in his God. We need to trust in that same God. So I have a question for you. Why would you not Trust him. Now, this is not just a rhetorical question. People have reasons slash excuses why they don't trust God. I'm not going to belabor this, but I think that if for you, when you saw that pop on screen, why would you not trust him? Something came to mind right away. For many of you, hopefully nothing did, and you said, well, I do trust him. I have no reason not to trust him. For some of you, something may have popped to mind. I suggest that you think about that and pray about that. Because it's probably not something that holds up compared to the greatness of God. But in your mind, there may be something from your past, some wound you have, something that you wrestle with. And I'm trying to prod you here 
to get past that and trust the living God who does deliver and does rescue. Okay, so I want to finish with a high-level summary of the first six chapters. I only really have two points. These are themes that we've seen come through these six chapters of Daniel. The first one is that he and his friends are repeatedly put in situations where human institutions... I use that word because we've been studying First Peter in Sunday school where we're told to submit to human institutions. Human institutions, in this case, it's always the king, orders them to do something that violates something God has told them in Scripture. Examples have been food rules, worshiping only God and no other gods, things like that. That's been a theme in these chapters. And what happens is that at their peril, they decide not to compromise. And then God delivers them. And I say at their peril because in every case, they were, it was the risk of being killed. That's what they were risking. Second point is that the king in each of these chapters, and it's different kings. Nebuchadnezzar is the main one, but there's a couple others. Here it's Darius the Mede realizes that God is greater than all gods. God, Yahweh, the God of Daniel, is greater than all gods. And the king tells his kingdom about it. Belshazzar is the only exception. He, he rewards Daniel, but then he gets killed that night. Um, but the others, they tell their kingdom about it. And that leads me to this point. When we publicly trust in God, he is magnified. And others learn about him. Now, I have the word publicly there because when you privately trust in God, I think he's magnified. And he works in your life. But if you are in situations where you have a choice between hiding your faith or letting it be known, when it's a public trusting in God, not only is God magnified in you, But others learn about him, and he's magnified in them. So, is your faith strong enough to not compromise? That may take some thinking, because we really don't know until we're tested. It's easy to say, I would do such and such. I would not do such and such. The real test is, the real time you tell is when the test comes but you can prepare having convict the bible is full of stuff trying to help us have conviction on things god has taught and the reason we need convictions is so when the test comes we got something to stand on we're prepared the school of hard knocks is a valid school where you learn stuff and sometimes you don't have convictions and you go through a hard time and through that God will build a conviction. But it's far better to have the conviction in place to carry you through it instead of learning from hard knocks. What would you refuse to compromise over? I talked some about that earlier. Um, there are gray areas um, there are some black and white areas. I hope for you there's some black and white areas. But that's something to think about. Are you trusting God in the crisis areas of your life? I say crisis because in Daniel, each of these examples is a crisis. Their life's going to be on the line if they don't do what the king said to do. 
Now, most people that think there's a God, both Christians and non-Christians, tend to call out in desperation in a crisis on their God. You have probably had times in crisis where you've called out to God. And that's good. But are you actually trusting him when you get to that point? Trusting him gets back to what I said earlier about faith based on evidence. Things that you know God has said. Things that you know about the character of God. Things that you know God has done in scripture, perhaps in your own lives. Data points that give you a track record. And when push comes to shove in a crisis, you're at trusting him to give you wisdom, to take you through it, to be with you as you go through whatever that is. Now I'm going to change the word, though. Are you trusting God in the mundane areas of your life? So I'm stretching here because Daniel had nothing mundane in it, okay? They were all crises. But it does occur to me, and I heard this, I've heard this from a couple of other uh, people before, the mundane areas of our lives are where we live. 95 to 90% of your, 90 to 95% of your life are just the regular things of life. They're not crises. They're not major decisions. They're not mountaintop experiences. They're mundane. But mundane's where you live. So what I want to suggest to you is you can learn and prepare for trusting God in crises by learning and trusting, learning to trust him in the regular areas of your life. Wouldn't it be a shame if 90 to 95% of your life are the mundane, non-crisis things, wouldn't it be a shame to go through life and wind up having not trusted God for 90 to 95% of your life? Who wants to do that? Why would you do that when you know about God? So I encourage you, if you're not in a crisis, that's good. I'm hoping most of you aren't. Now, in saying that, Karen and Chuck are worshiping with us by Zoom. Chuck's died, father died this past week. They have a crisis in their family. Chuck's calling out to God. We, Karen's calling out to God. We have been calling out to God for them, for comfort and for wisdom. So they try to help, help his mom. But um, most of us, are probably not in a crisis right now. But that doesn't mean you can't be working on trusting God where you are. So last, is there a need to change the way you think and therefore the way you act? Let me close this in a word of prayer. Then Justin will come lead us in a song. Father, I thank you that you are a strong God. You are a big God. You tell us not to fear, not to anxiously look around because you are our God. You will uphold us with your righteous right arm. You are a God who is near. You are a God who sees. And in this era where Christ has risen, you actually dwell in us by the power of your Holy Spirit, united with our spirits. Thank you that you love us so much. Father, please work in uh, my heart and each of the hearts of the people here that we will be committed to trusting you, not leaning on our own understanding, but standing on what you have said. And I ask this in Christ's name. Amen.